let's face it, uh, Midwestern municipal governments are not always known for being super innovative and cutting edge. But that might be changing thanks to Enfocus. Well, the idea is to maintain and, and keep intellectually talented individuals in the South Bend region. People like Daniel Lewis, originally from New Jersey, he stayed in South Bend and is returning to the Enfocus group for a second year. Our goal initially was we were going to have seven fellows come in and we wanted to see four stay. And we actually had five stay, so I think we surpassed our goal. One of the five is Santiago Garces. He isn't returning to the group. Instead, he's been hired by the city of South Bend. With the city, what I'm doing is building the operational improvement systems across all of the departments and hopefully in the same process instill a culture of innovation. A job very similar to what he did in Enfocus, where he worked on a plan to use the city's fire trucks smarter, not harder. So we looked at these large fire trucks and fire suppression equipment that is very costly to operate. Especially when responding to medical calls where a large truck just isn't needed. What we did is look at how could you supplement the fleet, not get rid of the suppression, the fire suppression equipment, but instead magnify the fleet and get some SUVs that would supplement those, those emergency calls. The group crunched the numbers and put a pilot program into action to see if it would work in South Bend, and the numbers are dramatic. Total projected savings are about $1.4 million in the next seven years. If implemented, this project's going to save the city a lot of money, but there's another benefit to the city that you can't put a dollar amount on. The first benefit we got is that brain gain, the chance to retain some superb people in our community. Uh, a second benefit is that I think it injects the spirit of innovation into our culture. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week I have Santiago Garces. He is a data performance innovation specialist with the city of South Bend. I was walking along the street in South Bend late last year with a good friend of mine, Scott Ford. He's the planning development director for the city, a guy who I think is a really intelligent, smart guy. I have a ton of respect for him. And he turns to me and says, you need to know Santi. Santi is the guy who's getting it all figured out. So I said, we've got to get Santi on the podcast. Santiago, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thank you so much, Chuck. First of all, let's start out with where are you from? You're not from South Bend, obviously. You've come here from somewhere else. Where is that? So I come from uh, Colombia, from Bogota. So growing up, I had the opportunity to see what mayors like Enrique Peñalosa and Antanas Mocus had done for the city in terms of ownership and changing the culture of the entire city. And Bogota is a far bigger city than South Bend is, but, but I think that that was early on in my life kind of what drew me to the possibility of the city and infrastructure and all these things that are happening as an agent to change the way that people interacted with the space and interacted with each other. 
Yeah, a lot going on. Did you grow up in Bogota? Yes, yes, I did. Okay. Um, so I came to the United States after high school, uh, went to the University of Notre Dame for college, but left my entire life up to that point in, in Bogota. Yeah, yeah. Do they ever try to lure you back, Santiago? Or <laughs> I mean, it's still in the back of my head, maybe going back and applying a lot of the lessons that I have learned in South Bend. It's interesting because obviously some of the challenges that Colombia faces and that Bogota faces don't exist in South Bend, which makes it a lot easier and a lot nicer as a learning environment. Hopefully, uh, be able to share some of the gifts that I've been able to acquire in, the, in my time here. It's amazing. And I would love to have you on sometime to chat about Bogota and Colombia and, and the things that they've done there, because I've heard nothing but fascinating stuff. I want to make sure we get to some of the stuff that's happening in South Bend. Let's talk a little bit about the Enfocus team. How did that get started? Yeah. And how did you end up on it? Actually, I had a one-way ticket to go back to Bogota after my master was done. I did a master's in entrepreneurship in science and technology at the University of Notre Dame. And for our spring break through that master's program, we traveled to Raleigh to Durham in North Carolina. And we were able to see in Durham what the city had done with the American Tobacco facility and turn it into a entrepreneurial incubator and an economic development driver. Funnily enough, right across from this old facility that now had been repurposed, you had the stadium and the baseball stadium for the local minor league team. When we started thinking in South Bend, we have the old Studebaker the factory building and right across the street, you also have the stadium, the Cavalosti Stadium in South Bend. Right. And I think that that got people to start thinking, maybe there's an opportunity to retain folks that would otherwise go to other cities and start their careers, but maybe to stay in South Bend and, and provide enthusiasm and hopefully good wits to try to improve the city. So a group of leaders, community leaders here, from government, from industry, from academia came together and decided to go after some of the players in the community, the school corporation, the transportation authority, the municipality, to try to get them to pay for a small fee for sponsorship. And in return, we would be working in multiple projects trying to demonstrate. I think the, it's a pretty ambitious goal at the time as 10x return in five years. So uh, whatever they had spent in in the sponsorship, we had to return tenfold in five years. This was almost like a little think tank, in a sense, of recent college graduates called upon to kind of look at the way government, look at the way the city was operating and come up with new approaches. Is that kind of a fair way to describe it? Yeah, it's a fair assessment. So the idea is to encourage young people and give a different perspective and what was unique about and focus is that we ended up being tied in to many areas of the city that usually don't interact with each other. So I think like one of the areas that Enfocus has been able to leverage pretty strongly is the ability to traverse organizations that tend to be siloed off. So the county and the schools 
and the transportation authority and um, the city government itself. So, and even the hospital. So there's a lot of projects in uh, reducing the number of readmissions to hospitals uh, from diabetes and from smoking and whatnot. So it's it's interesting because it develops kind of a holistic understanding of the problems of the city. The one project within Focus that I'm familiar with, and I'd like to know if, if there's some more than this. I'm sure there is, but the one that I'm very familiar with is the fire department one, the repurposing. Essentially, you guys looked and saw that for every tiny little thing, the fire department was sending the big truck and the whole crew out. This is something that is very familiar to our listeners because most cities around the country operate in that way. You guys took a look at this and made some suggestions. Talk about that project and the approach you took and what you guys came up with. Yeah, so that was the project that uh, I was leading all of this city engagement. So through the experience of our mentors and particularly Gary Gillette, who is the former director of public works at the city and now works at Notre Dame kind of as a liaison in terms of leadership and engineering between the city and the university. He said, I mean, there's an inference. You have trucks that are actually the second heaviest pieces of equipment that traverse the road. So there's obviously, they're very expensive to maintain. They're very expensive to run in terms of fuel. And they also deteriorate the pavement at a higher rate than any other vehicle. So the thought was there's a trend of a change in the types of calls that fire departments respond to. So more and more, and actually the larger the city, the more marked this trend is that you have fire departments responding to medical emergencies far more than fire alarms or firefighting. So we thought, can we determine with the help of mathematics and the data a way to optimize which fire stations would benefit the most from responding to certain types of calls with an SUV that would maybe even increase the response time because it wouldn't have to deal with the snow in the alleys and whatnot. So kind of a smaller vehicle that had better access, but that was a lot less expensive to operate. The numbers that I saw were that by making these changes, by making these switches, you guys were able to save well over a million dollars and basically improve your response time, get out to the sites more quickly. Is that true? Yes, yes. So we forecasted $1.4 million in savings. And there's also an environmental impact as well because we did several models in terms of different possibilities. So just SUV trucks or SUV trucks that have been retrofitted to work with the compressed natural gas and whatnot. So those savings were net. So those after the lease of the equipment, after retrofits and whatnot. So it's, it's very powerful, particularly given the increasingly tightened uh, fiscal climate in municipalities and Especially in Indiana, we have more and more challenges with being able to finance operations in cities and being able to do all the things that the residents want. So just a a way to optimize resources. And what's neat about the approach is that we only had to buy equipment. We didn't have to sell, get rid of the fire-suppressing equipment. And just with new vehicles, you'd be able to save quite a bit of money and 
increase the redundancy of vehicles, and I, th- I think that overall create a far better climate for for the firefighters. What was the feedback from the firefighters? Was this something that they were resistant to, or something that they embraced? What was the approach from those people? I think that initially there was some resistance. One of the things that we did was run a pilot to try to demonstrate. So we started with a phased approach. Every week we would add a different type of call that the firefighters usually responded to that they would go into a vehicle. And at the end of the pilot, we ended up with like an 80% prediction rate of, of the savings in terms of mileage. And that even included a period where there was a change in crew. So the captain that was in charge of the, of the pilot got replaced by another captain. So it probably would have been a lot better if it had been carried for a lot longer. I mean, there's obviously concerns in terms of what happens if a vehicle is deployed and uh, there's a fire call and whatnot. So we try to make sure that with the information from historic data, we were able to demonstrate that most of the calls that that are attended by more than one fire vehicle, the second vehicle always gets almost within like three minutes of the the arrival of the first vehicle. So that helped these some some concerns. And then the bigger question now is how does the findings and how does this plan mix with the larger strategy of the fire department? So how does it impact the retrofit and the build of new fire stations? How does it affect the training? How does it affect the procurement? So it's interesting and the, it helps spread a lot more conversations. And I think that hopefully what it did also to the fire department is it made them realize how innovative and how willing they were to pursue new options. So, so at the beginning, a little bit more troublesome, but I think that overall, like very positive effects. When you finished up with InFocus, you were, again, I think, faced with a decision on whether to take a job somewhere else. Scott Ford told me that you should be working at some big company in a back room getting paid tons of money. (laughs) Uh, Well, you were faced with that, or you could have stayed on with the city, and you chose to stay on with the city. What was the job you were offered, and what was that part of that decision-making process for you? I mean, I got offered a number of very interesting projects working with, again, with kind of highly innovative people that are doing some very exciting things, uh, and they would have involved possibly going around the world to other communities and whatnot. But I think that for me, having... South Bend, and this is, it's a mutual relationship at this point. I think that I've learned so much in South Bend and I've invested so much time and so much energy and so much passion that leaving early on and especially seeing what Mayor Pete Buttigieg is doing in the city and people like Scott Ford and Gary Gillard and Mike Bikensky, all these community leaders are doing, I just felt that, that it wasn't just the right time to leave and and I keep falling in love and more and more with South Bend. I think that it has a great opportunity to be kind of this testing ground for ideas that might be applicable to larger cities. Kind of what happened with our combined sewer system, the smart sewers developed by MNET 
in that were developed originally in a partnership with South Bend and now are commercialized all across the world, across the country. So I just felt that the opportunity was too good to pass in South Bend and, and there's some exciting things. And I remembered uh, a line from the commencement speech that uh, Secretary of Defense Gates, former Secretary of Defense gave at my graduation saying that uh, it was a letter from Abigail Adams talking about how you can only have greatness when there's great opportunity, but if you didn't have <laughs> tough problems to solve, you people would get bored. So <laughs> that's awesome. I ended up making the chase to save. You moved over from the Enfocus team to the city hall, and now you're a city staff member. Let's talk about some of the projects you've done there. You've got an interesting one going on with, of all things, garbage collection. You guys put some tags on garbage cans and have been using your GIS system to optimize that. Garbage collection seems like a pretty simple thing. Why is this drawing your focus? When we started looking at the garbage collection, but kind of the more comprehensive need for a clean city, it started drawing the need to take a more comprehensive approach. So I've been working with two departments, with the Bureau of Solid Waste and with the Department of Code Enforcement. And both of them end up dealing with the same problem, which is trash in the streets from different standpoints. And we noticed that we had a really high rate of missed pickups from the solid waste standpoint. And one of the things that we're trying to determine is, are those missed pickups because people didn't take out the trash? Was it because we haven't delivered them a bin? Was it because the driver simply didn't follow our route and skipped the pickups? So we started looking around for, and this was led by Eric Horvath, who's the director of public works, and started looking around for alternatives. And we were able to find a company that would provide RFID tags on the bin and then a system that uses GPS and radio to be able to detect when you miss a pickup that the pickup is scheduled, the driver has to signal whether the bin was not out or whether they just didn't drive through the pickup spot and whatnot. So we're hoping that that drops the amount of missed pickups without having to increase the amount of resources. So without having to add another truck or add more personnel or add some other solution that would, that would be more taxing. And hopefully at the same time, we start understanding the pattern for trash collection and trash disposal that also affects code enforcement. So if people are not paying for trash service and their trash isn't being collected on time, they will end up dumping it in the street, causing those code enforcement violations. So it's kind of part of a larger plan. And we're looking like at a very local level, at a neighborhood level, those dynamics of how to keep the neighborhood clean and think of cleanliness as a service that the city provides us an all-encompassing service. Let's talk about a couple of the other projects. You've got something called KPI system numbers. And I have to say, I didn't fully understand what this one was. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. One of the bigger challenges, I think, at the city, I mean, this happens in any organization, but it's how do you communicate across the enterprise when there's issues in terms of performance, when there's things that are not going well, or when things are going exceptionally well. So particularly in, a, in an organization that's as complex as a city where you have departments that are 
so different from each other and their missions and the types of things that they think about are so different. So the police department thinks about number of people getting shot. The fire department thinks about number of buildings burned. The streets department thinks about uh, number of miles of road paved. So basically, how do we communicate whether each of those things are in according to the guidelines of, of the delivery of services that we expect? So we built a system uh, on SharePoint, a Microsoft product, to allow each of the departments to submit information about those key things that we want to measure with the relevant thresholds to indicate proper performance and then create this highly interactive dashboards where people from all across the city, all the way from the mayor to the people in the line are able to keep track of what's going on across the entire city. So we're still in development and the idea is to start growing and bringing in more departments. And it's based on some modern performance measurement uh, methodologies that started in Baltimore with City Set and not, but we've, we've tried to in part of necessity because we're so small, but make sure that it's very lean, very adaptive, and always reassessing whether what we're measuring is exactly what people care about. And if we care about and we're not measuring, how do we structure metrics that, that are very significant about the performance? It's always been shocking to me. I don't know if you would say the same thing or not. It's always been shocking to me how much data cities have and how little they do with it. And I know South Bend is a great place and you guys are doing a ton. You're way more progressive than most places. But is that something that has been, you know, shocking to you as well as kind of someone who gets the data and, and understands the systems behind the systems? Yeah. At this point, I think that I have an understanding of why there's that dysfunctionality. I think that cities have, for the most part, and most government agencies acted as kind of record keepers of transactions. So someone comes in, we stamp it, we put it in the drawer, then we send it up. But we never conceive that all of the information and all of those transactions, when you take a step back and you look at trends or you look at mathematical models and you start putting things that were not seemingly related and you start drawing the correlations between each other, that's when you start seeing the value of the data. So it's difficult even for people to understand why is it that we care so much about making sure that the transactions are kept scrubbed and that things are well understood and, and kept well done because it affects the data. It affects our ability to make decisions based on the information. And that's, that's the challenge. I think that private businesses have been a lot, I mean, just out of necessity because if they're not selling, they cease to exist. Whereas governments, we have the fake <laughs> safety of having a budget where we just collect money and then we just divide the money based on our priorities, but they don't necessarily correspond with the operational needs and the operational challenges that underlie the cost of delivery of those services as, as well match. So it's an interesting challenge and I mean, it's not unique to South Bend, not unique to uh, local government even, but uh, but it's always interesting trying to get to people. And this is the core piece, I think. More than the data, it's about the people. It's how do you communicate to them 
how data allows them to make better decisions and be able to perform their jobs with less stress and be able to accomplish all the things that we thought that we weren't going to be able to accomplish because we were limited in resources. So, South Bend, it's a very interesting city. There are a lot more challenges there than I maybe thought, you know, going in as a visitor. Everyone pretty much knows Notre Dame. And I think when I thought of South Bend, I thought of this idyllic kind of place surrounding this college campus. There's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of complexity with the city of South Bend. One of the things you guys are working on is looking at different neighborhoods and different parts of the city and trying to analyze and understand the cost of service delivery. What's the rationale behind that? And how is that project going? So I think that the rationale is cities tend to, I mean, the way that we budget, the way that we allocate resources in the city is assuming that there's a uniform distribution in terms of requirements for those services. So, that every square mile or every square inch of the city is equal to each other in the demands for resources in terms of sewage, in terms of policing, fire, solid waste delivery, all these things. When in reality, there's different, different areas end up costing more in terms of resources. And in a lot of cases, we end up deploying a lot of resources from a different set of departments to the same locality without kind of talking to each other and without, instead of having an amplifying effect where the execution of one service informs the execution of the other service, we end up having to spend even more money because we kind of blindfolded going in. So this is a project that's still preliminary. I mean, the cost piece is just informative in terms of what the potential is in terms of savings and how much you can start allocating to solve these problems and how much you're going to be rewarded at the end of the game. I think ultimately what we want to make sure is that we drive the quality of life and that we kind of the values that inform the administration are reflected in the community. So equality and fairness and opportunity for everyone it's kind of what we want to deliver, but at the same time, there's this sense that there is definitely a way to increase the quality of service while reducing the cost and using those cost savings to fuel even more things of interest to the neighbor. So at this point, I think we're kind of in the descriptive analytic piece, kind of just understanding what's the number of incidents, what's the variance of the incidents, kind of understanding also seasonalities and whatnot, but then assessing, okay, if we were to, given the programs that we have on the large projects, including the urbanism project in the main avenues and, and streets in the city, the vacant and abandoned initiative, how do we use those initiatives that are already ongoing to further impact and outcomes in those neighborhoods that tend to be most challenging? I mean, all of the phenomena that, that, that you talk about in terms of the exodus of, of, of people from cities and disbalances of cities and communities that end up kind of hurting themselves a lot more than helping when they, they take an unbalanced approach to development. Part of what you're doing is challenging this kind of standard way of thinking about some of these problems. You approach this, I think, a very admirable way 
as someone who is genuinely trying to make things better and using this kind of unique skill set and unique knowledge base that you have to ask some different questions about these problems than most people do. There are a lot of people in government who are very, very good people and are likewise trying to do the best job they can for people, but have a certain way of doing business and a certain approach that works for them and sometimes don't like to be questioned or don't like to be analyzed in the way that I, I think you know your calling prompts us to do. Is it difficult being a disruptor? And what are some of the things that people can do to make it a little bit easier? It is. <laughs> it can be quite challenging to, to push certain things. And particularly what I try to be most mindful about is kind of this change management mentality of how much can we digest at any given time as an organization and within each of the different groups. And fortunately, I have great support from the mayor, staff, and from all of the leadership at the city, the, the department heads and whatnot. So that's definitely, I think, support from the top is essential. I mean, without that, there's not even a conversation. But for me, what informs that desire to fail fast and learn quickly is this background and seeing what's happening in Silicon Valley and seeing what kind of the experience of the digital startups where there's a high desire and willingness to self-cannibalize and make changes in the way that you operate and in your paradigms almost constantly. You have to be, I mean, having a little bit of doubt, is there something, some better way that I could be doing this? But constantly trying to take that optimization and innovation. Innovation's about, I mean, that's why there's the two components. The performance improvement tries to tighten and optimize it. It's a converging operation, while the innovation piece is divergent. It's about giving ourselves a little bit of the opportunity to think, is there a different way of doing it? At this point, we're not even concerned if it's a better way of doing it. It's just, is there a different way of thinking about it? Those are like the two guiding forces of the processes. We will probably end up saving a lot of money, but also let's use that to give us more opportunity to make mistakes and I think that it's difficult in, in the public sector because you're not properly rewarded. If you save a lot of money, you don't necessarily perceive that yourself. I mean, it's almost an expectation of, like, oh, you did a good job. But if you fail, you get horribly chastised and you get punished by the public opinion and by, by the organization. So people tend to sit in idle. So doing a lot of work with people and making delivering small wins that turn them into believers. That's kind of what I've strived to do. And I think that that's the one strategy so far that seems to be most effective in terms of winning a few converts in within the different organizations within each of the departments and then use those people to convert more people and to get excited and whatnot. And there's some people that just will not buy in, but Hopefully, those people eventually feel like they need to jump into, into the movement in order to not stay in the sidelines of where the organization's heading. I feel like the model that you guys have is one that every city needs. 
We've done a lot of work here with the city of Memphis who has this mayor's innovation team and they're out there doing a lot of the same kind of work, asking some difficult questions and re-examining old paradigms. If you were going into a city today that did not necessarily have a Notre Dame, a feeder program, but it had maybe a different set of assets, what kind of things would you do to get a team like this up and running? There's usually in every community stakeholders that are underutilized, people that want to participate that just don't have the appropriate venue or the appropriate framework to participate, whether they're business leaders or just civically inclined people that might not have a lot of money but might have time and willingness. Hopefully, as, as time goes on, the reduction in cost of technologies and the availability of all of the things that are necessary to do the types of things that we're doing are becoming commoditized. And in fact, if that was not the case, a lot of the activities that we're doing in South Bend right now would have been less exclusive to cities like Chicago, New York, San Francisco. We're, we're a fairly small city of 100,000 people. So the more that you have the trend where the knowledge and the tools become less expensive, it becomes more feasible to do it in other cities. And I think that also seeking partnerships between cities. We learned a lot of the process and also we had to adapt it, but but we're highly informed by what people in Louisville were doing and they were extremely generous with their time, what people in Indianapolis were doing. So I think like keeping the conversations exactly with the podcast and the community that you maintain are exactly the types of things that allow people that would not be able to participate in the conversation to be able to be engaged. I've looked at your open data website. I don't know how involved you are with that or how aware you are of it, but South Bend has a pretty good platform for sharing public data freely with the public. And you actually do it in formats that are useful for the hackers out there. Is that something that is being done intentionally? I mean, what, are you part of that? Is there something that you're hoping to accomplish or is this just part of being an open government? The open data portal is part of a larger movement, I think, that's happening in the U.S. and in, in the world. There's multiple types of platforms. There's some platforms we use, Socrata, which is a company that helps us with the hosting and the maintenance of the portal. There's some other solutions that are open source. But we definitely work closely with the open data portal, and I think that it brings up a, a certain level of visibility that pushes onus towards the people that maintain the data. It turns every employee to the mindset of the data that you produce is data that is visible and transparent to the residents. So I think that it pushes more rigor in process. I mean, there's a very interesting line that Kim O'Reilly had about government as a platform. And in the past Code for America Summit, there's another fellow that was talking about how algorithms are about processes. And that's when you start having the convergence of data and computers with the real world. The systems and the computers and the data need to reflect or should be a reflection of what happens in the real world. 
and when they're not is when you have trouble making good decisions and, and acting upon it. So I think that that's something that the open data portal pushes onto us. And that mentality that we have to provide information in a way that's useful, and we consume the information as well internally, information that's in the open data portal. So it's a good platform, and the Knight Foundation and some other groups have been pushing pretty hard to to make sure that there's adoption of these open data portal. Let me ask you kind of one last question. Yeah. I am, uh, and I know he's your boss, so I, I know there's a limited range of things you can say, perhaps, but I'm deeply impressed with your mayor. And when I met your mayor, when I have seen some of the stuff that he's done, when I've heard people that have worked with him and for him talk about him, he just seems like one of the more dynamic leaders that we have today in this country. I don't want you to feel obligated to say one thing or the other, but I do think that it's important in this podcast, at least, that we acknowledge that a lot of this stuff comes from the top. And a lot of the stuff that you've been able to do has been enabled by a government led by people who are open to change and open to new ideas. Is that a fair assessment? And I guess, how would you kind of appraise the leadership in your community? Well, I think that the, all of the things that are happening in South Bend are definitely a reflection of the mayor, of the community leaders at large, and people that are willing to give something else a try, a different approach. For me, mentally, it goes a little bit to to the same comment about Abigail Adams. Only when you have great challenges, you have true greatness and, and the ability to explore that. And I think that that's why Mayor Pete has been able to be successful. At, and I think he does a really good balance of pushing the boundaries and trying to provide a framework and a value framework that allows all of the city employees to push things and and improve the quality of the city, but at the same time, make sure that it is always done in a way that's transparent, where people feel comfortable, where people feel engaged with the process. So, I mean, definitely leadership affects quite a bit. And this is part of why I was so intrigued about staying in South Bend. There's this very strong relationship, both from the top down, but also people, I think that the residents of South Bend really enjoy and, and and feel connected with the things that Mayor Pete is doing. So that by itself speaks of South Bend and it speaks of the mayor in a way that's I know, very encouraging. From from my standpoint, I'm a person that got to South Bend eight years ago as a foreigner without any ties to any place in the U.S. and they've managed, I think, the community and the mayor and they've managed to turn it into a uh, place that I'm really proud to call home. So I think that Mayor Pete contributes very, very strongly to the environment that happens, what happens within the city government, but also what happens in the community at large. Well, Santiago Garces, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. You're an inspiration, not only for your story and, and the stuff that you've done, but you know, here we have a Colombian in the United States quoting Abigail Adams. <laughs> you know, you're an inspiration for all of us in many ways. So keep working on the stuff you're doing and let us know when new stuff comes up. I mean, I, I would love to have you on again and talk about 
the next project you're working on. I know that a lot of people listening today have just become really enthused about innovation and disruption in their community. So thank you so much. No, thank you so much, Chuck. And uh, it's very encouraging. Sometimes when you're working in this project here, that might lose the end inside and think that you might be going a little bit crazy and whatnot. But it's very encouraging to know that there's a community of people that are listening and that are interested. And I think it's a very exciting time. It's a very exciting place to be in all across the U.S. and hopefully all across the world. There's there's things that are happening, things that are happening in Colombia and whatnot. So definitely I would love to come along and talk again about some more projects. But in the meantime, thank you so much. Hey, thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening out there. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. but can I take a message? What do you mean they're not here? Well, uh, this is awkward, but the government has shut down. It turns out I'm the only essential employee in the place. But I could have told you that months ago. (laughs) Look, if you can give us coordinates for the International Space Station, we may have a small chance for survival. Okay, let me get a pen here. I'm going to say that Janet from Space called, and I'm going to say this is very important. Okay, all set. Y'all have a good day now. No, you said no.